Amen. Thank you, Steve, and the music team for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, I especially love uh, that Is He Worthy song. Um, I love it because the, the chorus is straight out of Scripture. It's, uh, it's straight from the book of Revelation about who Jesus is, and, and the verses are set up um, like uh, what is historically known as a catechism. So it's uh, it's an it's a instructional tool for, for kids, um, is historically how it's been used, where it's a question and answer format, where you ask a question and then give an easy answer for it, and you teach gospel truths that way. And uh, that's how the verse is set up. And so what we're doing when we're singing that song is we are rehearsing truths, and we are speaking those to one another, where we ask, like, is he worthy? And we're, we're all in one accord saying, yes, he is. We are reminding ourselves of these glorious, beautiful gospel truths. And so I love uh, that song for that reason. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 10 this morning. Acts chapter 10. And if you're, uh, if you're one of those people who are a little nervous about the fact that we spent three weeks in Acts chapter 9, wondering, I don't know if we're ever going to get out of here, uh, we're going to do all of Acts 10 and some of Acts 11 this morning. So, so don't worry. We have different speeds. Um, one story at a time. Uh, so Acts chapter 10, uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage uh, this morning to start out, but uh, we are going to start in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it challenges us and teaches us and instructs us. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that applies your scripture. That we would be a church that, that wants to, to embody what it is that you are teaching us, that, that want to apply it. So God, give us ears to hear exactly what you're teaching us in this word this morning. And God, give us hearts to apply it to our lives. Let us be a people that are different, that are changed, that are better, that have grown in the image of Jesus as we leave here this morning because of our time spent together in your word. We love you and praise you, and it's the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Now, it seems like we as human beings naturally uh, devolve into an us-versus-them mentality, like where we are really good at building barriers and uh, boundaries and, and setting them up and, and making it the, the in-group and the out-group, right? And, and on top of that, 
it seems like it's a natural propensity for us to dislike the people in the other group, right? Like we, we look down upon or dislike the people that are, that are not us, that, look, that are different than us. We see this play out on a national scale all the time, right? Russia versus Ukraine, United States versus Russia, United States versus China, China versus Taiwan, India versus Pakistan, Switzerland, not a good example. But you see that play out on a national scale all the time of, of people, uh, an in-group and an out-group, and people disliking and hating one another. And if you think it's bad today, let me uh, remind you or teach you about uh, events that played out in history for over 100 years called the Hundred Years' War. Uh, in Europe, and the Hundred Years' War played out uh, in almost the entire uh, 1300s and then into the 1400s. And it started because uh, the King of England, who was of French descent, uh, claimed the, the, the throne of France for himself. And it just so happened that it was at, during a time of growing nationalism. So, so the English people began drawing those boundaries and those barriers and started seeing themselves as the English. And the French started drawing those boundaries and barriers and began distinguishing themselves as the French. And so when the English king said, the French throne is mine, the French nobles and the French people said, no, no, it's not. Like you, we can't have an English king over us. We have to have our own French king. We have to have our own ruler. And so that kicked off a 100-year war between England and France. There were uh, a few truces here and there, but for, uh, for the most part, for 100 years, uh, England and France were at war with one another. Uh, and this war got crazy. Like, so Scotland got involved as an ally of France. Uh, the kingdoms of Spain got involved mostly as an ally of France. The, uh, the kingdom of, uh, of Portugal got involved as an ally of England. The Pope was living in France at the time, but in territory controlled by England. And so the Pope got involved. And you know a war is going crazy when the Pope gets in and mixes it up with you. Like, it's, it, was, it was going crazy. Uh, France won the war, by the way, uh, for those. It's not, it's not at all related to the point of this story. Um, that's, but there's going to be some of you I know that if I don't tell you who won, you're going to be sitting there all sermon thinking, who won, who won the war? Are you going to tell us? Uh, so France won the war. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is that for over 100 years, families in England hated families in France, and families in France hated families in England. Uh, and they hated them for essentially no other reason other than the fact that they weren't French or they weren't English. They, they drew these boundaries. They drew these lines. They, they erected these barriers between them and the others, and they held fast to them. Uh, and those were unconquerable barriers between the two. The English were not French. The French were not English. Uh, well, way back in the time of Abraham, God himself drew a line. God himself made a barrier. When he called Abraham out and he said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And your nation, that nation, is going to be my people. and I'm going to be their God. And so he set aside the nation of Israel who came from Abraham. He set them aside and said, this is my people. And so uh, a few hundred years later, he gave them the law in, uh, that we have in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus. Uh, he gave them the law that separated them from the other people. And so it, it included these things like dietary laws, the food that they could or couldn't eat. It included things like ceremonial laws, different washings, different, different ceremonies and feasts and parties that they were supposed to throw to God, uh, these days that they were supposed to observe. And so they, all of these things set them apart 
from everybody else, right? It was the Israelites and everybody else who wasn't an Israelite. And the Israelites were the one that had the promises of God and only the Israelites. Like if you wanted to receive the promises of God, if you wanted to, to be part of the kingdom of God, you had to become an Israelite. You had to become a Jew. And for 2,000 years, that was the case. And over the course of those 2,000 years, it began to be felt within, the, within the, the, the Israelite circle that the Jews, the people of God, were automatically loved by God. If you were a Jew, God loved you. But if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, then you were a filthy, unclean heathen that God wanted nothing to do with. So by the time of Jesus, there was a sharp barrier, a sharp divide between the Jews and everybody else. The Jews are the people of God, and the Gentiles were unclean. When the early church, when it began, when Jesus came on the scene, he, he was a Jew, and he spoke within the Jewish nation, and he proclaimed the gospel. He, he died on the cross, he rose again from the grave, and he proclaimed eternal life and peace and entry into the kingdom of God, and he proclaimed it to Jewish people. And so the, the early church just assumed that, that that status quo was going to remain the same. And so they went out and they proclaimed the gospel to Jews in Jerusalem. And then they went out and they proclaimed the gospel to Jews in the surrounding area, in Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip extended it even a little further, where, where he shared the gospel with a Gentile, but it was a Gentile who was worshiping like a Jew and was following all of the Jewish customs. And that's as far as they got. They shared the gospel with Jews because the gospel was for the people of God, the Jews. The promises were for the Jews, and the Gentiles were dirty and unclean, and God wanted nothing to do with them. But praise God for our sakes that that didn't stay the same, and that the story didn't end there. Look with me, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So Luke introduces us to a man who is thoroughly Gentile. This is a guy that is not a Jew. He is, a, he is the commander of an auxiliary force from Rome, uh, probably a leader of about 100 soldiers. Uh, and, and the fact that he is leading that auxiliary force more than likely means he is from the, the Italy region. I'm like, he, is, he is not a Jew in any way, shape, or form. He is a Gentile. And so if he wanted to be uh, part of the people of God, if he wanted to receive the promises of God, he was going to have to become a Jew. Right? He's going to have to become one uh, ex- externally. Uh, and he was going to have to follow the law and follow all of it. And there's no indication in this passage that he does that at all. We, we get in verse 2. It says, It calls him a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So here's a guy who's uh, a Gentile who's like a model church member. Right? Be like Cornelius. Right? Uh, here's a guy who, uh, that's not the point, but here's a guy who, um, who loves the Lord. He, he is trying to follow after him. He is lifting up prayers continually. He is generous with the resources that God has given him. Like, here's a guy that seems like a model church member, but what we see missing in this description of him is the fact that he has not at all tried to become a Jew. Right? There's no indication that he has, uh, that he has uh, done any of the external, outward um, necessary acts to become a Jew or that he has followed any of the law, that he has placed himself under any of it, all we know from this guy is that he's a guy that believes in the Judeo-Christian God. 
He believes in him, and he, he believes that he is the, the true God and is trying to organize his life around that fact. That's all we know about him. He's not a Christian. He's not a Jew. He's just a guy who believes in God. And, and so for him, he's a guy that is, that is separated from the nation of Israel. And he's a guy that is separated and distanced, uh, distanced from the promises of God. In order to receive any of them, he would have to become a Jew. And there's one moment where Cornelius is lifting up prayers to the Lord. He is, he is praying to the Lord as it says he does often, and something incredible happens. Uh, God sends him an angel. He's praying to the Lord, and, and look with me in verse 4. God sends him an angel in verse 4, and Cornelius stared at the angel in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Jaffa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So imagine this for just a second. You are praying to God. Right? You're having your quiet time. So you, you found a, a quiet corner of your house. You've got your coffee mug in one hand, your journal in the other. Right? You're getting all settled in, and, and maybe you've just finished reading so, uh, the Bible or some devotional literature, and so you're like, I'm going to lift up some prayers to the Lord. And you start pouring out your heart to God in this quiet, serene moment. And then a dazzling, dazzlingly, brilliantly uh, bright light appears, and there's an angel in front of you. Uh, he naturally responds, like, what, uh, what do you want? <laughs> you know, like, what is it, Lord? Because <laughs> the, the angel appears, it's like, just the guy I was looking for. <laughs> You're like, uh, me? Like, what do you, what is it? What do I, what I do wrong? You know, what do I need? Uh, what is it, Lord? And the angel tells him, God has heard your prayers. Your prayers have come before him. He has heard your prayers. They are right before him. Go find Peter and have him come talk to you. That's very vague. Right? We know something is happening. Something incredible is happening here in this moment. We, we don't really know what. All the angel says is, go get Peter, have him come talk to you. That's it. Right? It's, it's a vague moment. But we know something incredible is happening. Something amazing is happening because this event is unprecedented. Like God has sent an angel to a Gentile and told him to go grab one of the 12 apostles and have him come talk to them. Like that's not, not only is that unprecedented in, the, in the, the, the short history of the early church, that's unprecedented in the 2,000-year history of Israel. A Gentile hears from an angel of God, and God tells him, I've heard your prayers. Go get Peter. Have him come talk to you. Something amazing is happening. We're just not really sure what yet. God's doing something behind the scenes. So uh, naturally, Cornelius gets a couple of his guys he sends them to the next town over to Joppa. He says, go get, go get Peter. He's staying at a guy named Simon's house. He's a tanner. It's apparently enough information to get around in those days. Uh, and so they go, they, he sends them to Joppa to go find Peter. Well, the next day, as those guys are making their way to Joppa, Peter goes up on the housetop, and he is having a time of prayer. So he's a few hours earlier than Cornelius, but he's going up, and he's, He's lifting up prayers to the Lord, and he, he's getting really hungry, so they're making him some food, but he is lifting up prayers to the Lord, and it says that while he was lifting up prayers, while he was, he was praying to the Lord, God gives him a vision. Look with me in verse 11. Fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, so Peter is given this vision by God, and a sheet comes down from heaven, and inside of it are a bunch of animals. And we can tell from Peter's response that these animals are unclean. Again, as I mentioned, in the law, in, uh, especially in Leviticus, uh, God tells the Israelites foods that they can and cannot eat. These are the animals that are clean for you. These are the animals that are unclean. So, so Israelites could not eat pork. They couldn't eat shellfish. Uh, they couldn't eat seagulls. They couldn't eat uh, pretty much any uh, reptiles at all. Uh, like they couldn't eat any of those things because all of those things were unclean. They were, they were uh, dirty and defiling, and so they, they could not eat any of those things. And so this sheet descends, and it's full of unclean animals that, that Peter, as a good former Jew, won't eat. And the sheet descends, and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat some of these. Like, I know you're hungry. Here it is. Right? Kill and eat. And Peter is horrified. <laughs> like, no, no. I will not kill and eat. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. I've never broken the law at all in that regard. All of those things are unclean. They're, 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 they're bad for us. They're uh, not allowed for Jews. So I, I've never eaten any of those. I'm not about to start now. I'm not going to kill and eat. And God responds to him, what I have called clean, do not call unclean. What I have called clean, do not call common. God's response to him shows that God has declared that those things are clean. God says, it's my decision whether something is clean or unclean. It is up to me whether something is clean for you or unclean for you. And if I say it's clean, you have no authority to say that it's not. Now, most of us stop there at this vision, and we say, see, this is why Christians can eat bacon. You know, <laughs> praise God. Um, and, and that is true, but that's not really the point of the vision. It is related to the point of the vision, but that's not at all the point. In fact, Peter isn't really sure what the point is. He, he's, he, he sees this vision, and God gives it to him three times in a row just to really drive it in. Like, Peter has a reputation for being a bit hard-headed. So here it is three more times, just to, just to make sure he gets it. And, and after the third time, it goes up, and Peter's sitting there thinking, what happened? Like, I don't, I don't get it at all. If, it, it, it wasn't immediately obvious to him as if God was saying, go eat unclean animals, right? I can just picture Peter standing there, puzzled thinking, like, am I supposed to go eat a gecko? Like, what? Are they having a sale on ostrich at the meat market? Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Like, any more information would be nice. Any bit of context would be great. I don't understand at all what this means. It says uh, in verse 17, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision meant, uh, that he, uh, this vision that he had seen might mean. But while he's standing there completely perplexed, the two men from Cornelius arrive. They find the house, uh, and they arrive. And look with me in verse 19. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter is standing there 
completely perplexed, completely puzzled, has no idea what this vision means, and God, through the Spirit, uh, the, God the Holy Spirit tells him and prompts him and says, you have some guys here that are looking for you. Go with them. Now, this is not an answer to Peter's confusion. Right? Like this, Peter has connected zero dots here at this point. Like He knows, all right, weird vision about food. Okay, uh, some guys are here to meet me and want me to go with them. Okay, probably related, but no idea how. Like, you know, Peter has, has connected exactly zero dots here. There's no indication about what the vision means yet. And so he goes to the door. He sees the guys that were sent from Cornelius, and he, he, he greets them. And he says, what is it that you guys want? <laughs> you know, what, what do you want with me? What are, you, uh, what are you here for? And they explained to him, we're sent from a Gentile, Cornelius. Uh, and God has sent us, an angel has sent us, and uh, he wants you to come to his house and talk to him. Now it's starting to make sense. You see, Jews were not allowed to go into Gentiles' houses and interact with them. Because again, at this point, the Jews were clean, the Jews were the people of God, and the Gentiles were dirty heathens that, that could rub their uncleanliness off on you. And so, so good, pious, religious Jews wouldn't even go into Gentiles' houses. Right? They would try to minimize interactions with Gentiles on a normal basis. Just maybe, maybe I might rub shoulders with them walking down the road and it's going to defile me. Right? So they, they tried their best to avoid Gentiles any way they could because the Gentiles were unclean. And so for Peter, as a, as a former Jew, he was not supposed to go into a Gentile's house. He was supposed to have limited interaction at all with Gentiles because the Gentiles were unclean. And here these guys are saying, you're supposed to come with us to Cornelius' house and come talk to us. And he, Peter, knows that the Spirit of God has told him to go with them without hesitation. So now he's starting to put the pieces together. What the vision means is that God has called the Gentiles clean. And if God has called them clean, who is Peter to say that they're not? God has started to break down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. God has said, they're not unclean. They're not going to defile you. Go with them without haste. What Peter does next is, is he knows uh, the, the, the uh, Caesarea is at least a day's journey, and so they're going to have to wait till the next day to leave. And so what Peter does is he invites those men into his house to stay the night. Now, I don't want you to miss the, the prof like how profound that moment is. Right? Inviting a Gentile into your home to stay the night was not as bad as going into a Gentile's house, but it was still considered bad. Like Again, these are people that for centuries the Jews thought would defile them or, or make them unclean or, or disappointing to God. And so uh, Jews would try to have very limited interaction with them, but here Peter is recognizing that God has called them clean. He says, you're welcome to come in and stay the night with us. I mean, this would be like the, the, the leader of the KKK in the 1960s agreeing to worship at a black church on the Sunday morning. You know, like as incredible as that would have been, this is even more groundbreaking than that, even more countercultural than that. Because this is 2,000 years of barriers put up between Jews and non-Jews. 2,000 years of barriers between God's people and not God's people. 2,000 years of barriers that had built up to the point where the Jews thought that the Gentiles were unclean and you couldn't even brush against them. And you could never go into their house. And here's Peter saying, come on in, 
stay the night. I'm going to go with you. And with, I'll go with you in the morning. And we're going to go to Cornelius' house, and we'll talk to him. Peter recognized that the vision that God sent him was, wasn't about food necessarily. It was about the Gentiles. And if God called them clean, who is he to say otherwise? The next morning, they, they get up, and they start to head towards Caesarea. It's Peter. It's the two men from uh, it's the two men sent from Cornelius, and then it's a, a group of very intrigued Jewish Christians. They're like, "I want to go see this, right?" Which is one of my favorite moments of the story. Like, there's a whole group of guys that are like, "I got three days to kill. Like, you want to go up to Caesarea and see what this is all about?" And so they they tag along, and they, that whole little group um, goes up to Caesarea. And they make the day's journey up there, and when they get there, uh, look with me in verse uh, verse 24. The following day, this whole group entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So, I mean, this is a house like full of Gentiles, right? Like just all, a, a, a captive audience, uh, but, but a, a house that a Jew would never dare walk into. He called all of his relatives and close friends together, and Peter entered. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So, Cornelius, again, not a Christian, not a Jew, just someone who believes in the Judeo-Christian God, not quite sure how all of this works, not quite sure how all of it works out. In Cornelius' mind, he's probably trying to be respectful, right? Like, you're the guy that God has sent to me, so clearly there's something special about you, so I'm going I'm to praise you and worship you. But in Peter's mind, in the minds of all the Jewish Christians, they're looking at him thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is exactly why we don't engage with the Gentiles, right? This is everything that's wrong with them. Like, they, he's worshiping me as a god. Like, you've got, are you sure, God? Like, this, this seems really unclean to me. Um, but Peter, Peter lifts him up and says, dude, I'm just a guy, I'm just a human. Don't worship me. And he enters his house. Uh, and this great moment happens here in verse 30. He enters, or, excuse me, sorry, verse 27. When he talked with him, uh, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to even visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? So Peter lays out what his vision mean, meant. He said, God has showed me that I'm not supposed to treat you like you're unclean. Because God has said that you are clean. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You just tried to worship me three minutes ago. But you're not unclean. And you will not defile me if I have, have a conversation with you, if I enter into your presence and, and talk with you. So, so I'm here. God has shown it to me. What am I here for? What is it that you want from me? Cornelius goes on to tell him about uh, the angel that God had sent him. Uh, and he says, look, all I want from you, look with me uh, in verse 33. I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What Cornelius essentially is saying is, you have a message, let me hear it. Like whatever it is that God has given to you, whatever it is that God has laid on your heart, whatever it is that God has, has the message that God has given you, let me hear it. And Peter, as a Christian, says, I have one message for you. 
you heard of a guy named Jesus Christ. Look at me in verse 34 of how Peter responds. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The message that Peter is proclaiming is the gospel and it is profound because what he's saying here is that God shows no partiality. None of the barriers that we put up matter to God. The gospel transcends every single one of them. He shows no partiality to anybody, but anybody in the world who places their faith in Jesus and trusts on him and calls to him can receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. To hear that come out of Peter's mouth in that moment is profound. Here's a guy whose entire life has been spent trying to get away from Gentiles because they were unclean and defiling. And here he is in the house of a Gentile saying, God shows no partiality. If you place your faith in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Proclaiming the glorious good news of the gospel. Praise God that God has granted the opportunity to have eternal life to Gentiles because I don't know about you, but that's me. And so, uh, and so praise God that anybody in the world who is willing to place their faith in Christ, can receive forgiveness from sins and eternal life. Something amazing happens right after that. In verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So this group of Gentiles who were waiting to hear the gospel, who were, who were ready to hear about what it means to, to follow Jesus, when they heard the gospel, they responded to the gospel, and the Holy Spirit fell upon a group of Gentiles. And the, and the Jews who were among them, the former Jews who had become Christians, were amazed because this is the first time in the history of the world that the Holy Spirit had fallen on Gentiles. That, the, that the, the people of God had ex- and the promises of God and the eternal life that God provides expended, extended beyond the borders of Israel and began to include Gentile people. They were standing there amazed that God confirmed, yes, anybody, anywhere, who is willing to place their faith in Jesus can receive eternal life. So the Holy Spirit falls on them and, and Peter and the rest of the guys with them are they, they, they say, yeah, these guys can get baptized. 
These new Gentile believers should get baptized, which means that, that these new Gentile believers would be identified with the people of God. These new Gentile believers would be identified with the church of God. That there wasn't Jew and Gentile in the church. That there wasn't Jew and Gentile and the people of God, but all could be brought together by Jesus Christ. Peter says God has clearly confirmed that these people are believers, that these people have received eternal life, so who can stop them from getting baptized? We have this wonderful moment of baptizing these first Gentile converts, these first Gentile, Gentile believers there at the end of chapter 10, verse uh, 48. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they asked him to remain for some days. So, so Peter shares with them, talks with them for a little while. But if news breaks kind of throughout Judea that Peter, one of the 12 apostles, a good former Jew, has gone into a Gentile's house and ate with them. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. News breaks among the, the, the Jewish Christians there throughout Judea, and they are appalled. Like, none of them received the vision. Remember, like none of them had this weird vision of, of uh, uh, a blanket coming down with unclean animals. Like None of them had this experience, and so they are appalled at the news. Like, are you kidding me, Peter? Like, you went to a Gentile's house and ate with him, and then you baptized them. <laughs> And so they are appalled at him. They are angered at him. And so what Peter does when he gets back to these Christians, he hears their anger and they, they confront him. He tells them all that God did. He tells them about his vision. He tells them about the Holy Spirit falling on these new believers. He tells them about the gospel going forth and their baptism. He shows them all that God did. And look with me in verse 18 of chapter 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They, they recognize the same thing that Peter recognized, which is in Christ, God has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. The barrier that existed for 2,000 years, the barrier between the people of God and not the people of God has been broken down, and all people can receive eternal life in Jesus Christ. All people can receive forgiveness of sins by the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Christ, God has broken down all of the barriers. The gospel transcends all barriers. All people have the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. That's what I want us to get out of this story this morning. Since the gospel transcends barriers, so should we. Since the gospel transcends all barriers, so should we. There are a lot of barriers that we confront and that we, that we see in the world. That there are a lot of us versus them. There's a lot of groups. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with, like, with barriers, like national borders and things like that. There's nothing wrong with those. But there are barriers that the gospel transcends. And because the gospel transcends them, so should we. Let me give you a few examples one example of a barrier that the gospel transcends is physical, geographical barriers. Right? Americans can place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. Colombians can place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. Nigerians can place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. Norwegians can place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. Chinese can place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. It doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak, what tribe you're from. Any, all people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to receive eternal life. The gospel transcends all national borders. It transcends all geographic barriers. And because the gospel 
transcends those borders because the gospel covers over all of those people. We need to transcend those barriers and go and proclaim the message of the gospel and to share that good news with people all over the world. We go on mission trips and we send missionaries because there are people in the world that have no access to the gospel message. And they could live their entire lives from from when they're born to the time that they die, they could go their entire lives without ever hearing the name of Jesus. And that should be appalling to us because those are people that Christ has died for. Those are people that can receive eternal life if they hear the good news and respond and place their faith in Jesus. And so we should desperately long to go share the gospel with people around the world because the gospel transcends those barriers, so should we. Another barrier um, that the gospel transcends is cultural barriers. We are very comfortable in our culture. We are, we are comfortable with our social norms. But Christ has died for people that are different than you. The gospel transcends those barriers and can cover people who, are, uh, who you find different or weird or annoying. Like the gospel transcends cultural barriers, and so because of that, we need to get out of our comfort zone and go engage people of other cultures and bring them the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ because they're people for whom Christ has died. And they, if they place their faith in him, regardless of what their culture is like, they don't have to become like us. They have to place their faith in Jesus. And if they do that, they'll have eternal life in Christ. So we need to get out of our comfort zone and transcend cultural barriers to go proclaim the gospel. The gospel, similarly, the gospel transcends racial barriers. Christ died for people that look different than you. That's why racism is is abhorrent to God and and completely antithetical to the gospel because racism treats somebody like they're subhuman, like they're somehow less than you, like you are superior to them. But the reality is that the gospel transcends all racial barriers and all people of every every nationality, of every, uh, every skin tone, all people of every culture, everybody has the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus and receive eternal life equally. And so because the gospel transcends racial barriers, so should we. Because the gospel transcends racial barriers, we should share the gospel with and worship with people that look different than us. The gospel transcends political barriers. Christ did not just die for Republicans. And so if you're, build, if you're busy building barriers politically and, and acting with an us-versus-them mentality and treating, treating the gospel as if it is only for people that agree with you politically, um, then you are missing the point. Your voter registration card is not one of the documents that God is going to ask for when he judges you on Judgment Day. All he's going to look at and ask is if you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, if you have placed your faith and your hope and your trust in him. And so a Democrat or a Green Party or Libertarian or whatever someone wants to vote for, if they, they should not feel out of place here because the gospel transcends those political barriers. So if you talk about Christ as if he's only on your side, and you talk about Christ as if he's only available to people that vote like you, then you're missing the point. The gospel transcends political barriers. So should we. Instead of building up and reinforcing those barriers, we should transcend them and share the gospel with people that think differently than us. The gospel 
transcends linguistic barriers. Some of us have the capability to learn another language. And if that's you if, you, if you have the ability to learn another language, then you should strongly consider doing that. Because if you can learn another language, you have more people that you can share the gospel with. In our area, if you learn Spanish or if you learn Chinese or Mandarin, um, then you have the ability to, to share the gospel with an even greater number of people. If you can learn a, a American Sign Language, then you can share the gospel with a group of people that is one of the number one unreached people, unreached people groups in the world. And so if we have the capabilities of learning another language and transcending that linguistic barrier, then we should do that. Because the gospel transcends those barriers. And people that speak a different language than us equally have the opportunity to enter into eternal life if they place their faith in Jesus. And so it should burn within us a desire to go share the gospel with people. It, we should hate the fact or the thought of anybody going their life without hearing the message of the gospel. Because Christ has died for them. And the gospel transcends all of those barriers, all of the things that are in our way. And if, if the gospel transcends them, so should we. Some of you this morning need that gospel message yourself. Some of you this morning don't need to think about how to go share it. Some of you this morning need to think about actually experiencing it for the first time yourself. Hear me. There is eternal life for you. There is forgiveness of sins for you. You can be part of the family of God and experience his eternal kingdom forever. And all that is required of you is to place your faith in Jesus, to recognize that he has died for your sins and has risen again from the grave to give you eternal life. So if that's you this morning, you know that you need to experience eternal life in Jesus for the first time. You need to receive the gospel. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. And what I'm going to ask of you is, is a step of boldness, a step of faith, to step out and come talk to me and say, Bryn, I, I need that. I need the gospel. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to talk after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not hesitate. Do not wait. If that's you and you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I'll be right here and I would love to talk with you. But for everybody else, if you have the gospel, you have good news about eternal life that is available in Jesus. So transcend any barriers that you have to to go share it. Transcend any cultural barriers, any racial barriers, any linguistic barriers, any physical, geographic barriers. Go where you can. Go where God sends you and transcend those barriers to share the gospel. There are people out there that need it. Are lost and dying without hope. We have the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have eternal life in Jesus. I thank you for the hope that we have and for the life that we have in Christ. I thank you for, uh, for the salvation that we have in him and that we can, we can stand confidently on judgment day before your throne uh, as, as Christ comes to judge the world, we can stand confidently before you because we've been covered by your blood, by the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in the gospel, that we would find strength 
in the gospel, that we would, we would stand firm in the gospel, and that we would be, it would be our heart's desire to see people come to know you. That we would long to see people enter into a relationship with you. That we would long for heaven to be filled with people who we know, who we, who we interact with, who we, who we love and care for. So, Father, I pray that we would be willing to transcend any barriers to go proclaim the message of the gospel. I pray our hearts would break at the thought of people not knowing you. And I pray we would go to whatever lengths we need to to share the gospel. I pray, Father, this morning for people here that need the gospel themselves. For anyone here this morning that needs to enter into eternal life with you, Father, I pray they would step out in boldness and in faith and receive eternal life. Love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.